Hooper now offloads. Oh, so close, still short. Glaubanga. There he is! He's over! Hello and welcome to the Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. We are diehard rugby fans having a weekly chat about all things Aussie rugby. We're real, family-friendly, and positive, so get involved. Get involved. Oh, yeah, beautiful, gentlemen, beautiful. It's getting better every week. Uh, Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us. If this is your first time listening to the pod, welcome. If this is your 42nd time listening to the pod, as this is episode (laughs) 42 for season two, welcome back. It's great to have you. Um, We are riding high as Wallabies fans right now, four in a row. How are we all feeling, gentlemen? I am just over the moon. I am having chats with mates left, right and centre about the Wallabies. People are starting to pay attention again. It is amazing what the Wallabies winning does to the psyche of Australian rugby fans. Long may it continue. Rev? Yeah, I'm walking down the street and seeing Wallabies jerseys out. It's um, it, it's a nice sort of change of pace. And there is something really exciting about just seeing a team that is winning and able to put things together. I think it's really trying to let that taste because we've had some uh, really high highs and some pretty low lows this year. So it's nice to see that we're at that uh, peak again. Yeah, and I think the best thing about it is that we didn't see this coming, realistically. We were talking about going into the rugby champs and happy to come away with one win overall, possibly two. But to be sitting four and four in a row is just fantastic. So how good, riding a high. Um, Let's just roll it all the way through the rest of the year. But uh, we do have some social media platforms, so why don't you run through those for us, Ando? Easy. So you can hit us up on Instagram at hashtag pick underscore drive underscore rugby, Facebook at the Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast, and then Twitter at pick underscore drive rugby. Get involved with us, have a chat, have a qu- ask questions, get your banter out there and throw us some uh, comments. We love to chat and get engaged and involved with our fans. Now, we do have some Super Brew results because it is the final week or it was the final week of the super brew tipping for this uh championship so i'll go through the round results first congratulations to Lickerbox, who got the yellow cap who got a massive 3.5 points he picked both games got a bonus point and some additional points as well mitch um we got julia mather as well 3.25 which is fantastic Mitch, you came third, mate, with uh, 2.5, so very well done, buddy. And then... That's Rev, actually. That's Rev. Oh, that's Rev, sorry. Yep, Yep, that one is Rev. There's two Mitches in our team. (laughs) And then overall. So overall, this is the final standings, and we're going to read out the top 10, and you'll soon find out why. Why why 10, Endo? Why 10? (laughs) No, no. Actually, I'll read it from bottom to top, okay? So in 10th, in 10th is... uh, Shad Jr., Shad Jr. on 11.25, well done. On ninth is me. Congratulations, me. I won't go through the scores. Uh, how many Jonathan... How many points did you drop into this round, though? Can we yeah, let people um, know that? Yeah. <laughs> Remind me where you are in the rankings, Mitch. It doesn't matter where I am. 21st? 20... 21. 21. 21. You're very proud yeah. of that 21. I'm not 22nd, I'm 21st. Um, <laughs> then eighth is Jonathan Northall. Seventh is Mushroom Sauce. Sixth is Sensation. Fifth is Julia Mather. We went up nine spots. It is insane what a really, really good round will do. Fourth yeah, was well Lickerbox, who was a golden cap. He went up 15 spots. It's just incredible. One round of tipping takes you up 15. Well done. I think it's everybody was expecting New Zealand to win. So there's a lot of opportunity there if you tip the Saffers. 
Um, and then front row came third. CisPT2 came second. He's in top three nearly all the time. And then Bonds, number one on 13 points overall. Congratulations. Massive effort well there. Well done. Absolutely love it. So, um, yeah, keep your eyes out. We'll be, yeah, super excited and giving you guys some notice about what's coming next soon. Fantastic. Well, thank you, everyone, for getting involved with that. That was a lot of fun. And hopefully next year we have some more opportunities for you to engage But we, uh, with us. So we will work hard on that in the off season and we'll get back to you very soon, hopefully with some tidbits about what that will be. But what we're going to do tonight, uh, we are going or today or this afternoon or this morning, wherever it is when you're <laughs> listening to this, we will be chatting through the rugby champs, the final round, round six. So we will go through the first game, which was Australia and Argentina. And then we will chat through New Zealand and South Africa, the nail biter that it was. And then we'll, we'll go and give a bit of an overview of what we thought the whole competition, how it went. Um, and we'll give each team a score out of 10. We've then got some news that's come out today and over the weekend, which is pretty exciting. So we're looking forward to getting to that. And we'll finish things off with the locker room, hearing from our fans and yeah, answering some questions. So that'll be good as well. Uh, shall we get into it, guys? Yep, let's go. We are back talking about the last round of Rugby Championship. This is a really exciting point for us because, as has already been mentioned, we're sitting on four consecutive wins. It's a nice feeling. We're second on the Rugby Championship ladder. And when we were looking at that ladder after the first two rounds against New Zealand, I think there was a bit of uh, fear that we may not get much higher than that last spot. A doom Our and gloom. differential was looking shocking. <laughs> we were really uh, in a bit of strife, but we've come back uh, with a really resounding 32-17 to 17 win over Argentina. Uh, another nice double-digit win, which is nice to keep adding to the uh, arsenal for Rennie. Uh, winning 32-17 to 17 in pretty trying conditions uh, before what probably should have been the 100th match between these two game, uh, these two teams. South Africa just edging New Zealand 31-29 in a much better spectacle uh, than the week prior, despite the same sort of points difference. Uh, this game really had a bit of everything and was much more sort of edge-of-your-seat stuff uh, going into it. So some really uh, great results to talk through. We'll stick with the Australia-Argentina one because it was the first match of the round. Um, I'll throw this to you, Mitch. Uh, how in love with Andrew Calloway are you? Oh, he just gets better and better. And I love the nickname that Ando called him a few weeks ago, Mr. Findaway. Every time he does something amazing, I'm just like, there he is, finding a way yep. yet again. He just he keeps popping up everywhere and... He's like that Corabetti type player that just wants to be involved. But where we've seen with Corabetti this year is he seems to be a little bit overplaying his hand in some instances. Kellaway is underplaying his hand, but is still popping up and finishing things off beautifully. And yeah, three tries this week. It just, yeah, I'm losing words. He's just, he's so good. <laughs> he's so good. He- he nearly is like a scrum half in the way that he's just always behind the ball. He always knows exactly where to be. And it's a really impressive trait for a winger to have, uh, knowing exactly where to be in the right spot. Because as we can see, he's uh, eight tries in, I think, eight tests this year. He's closing in on the record set by Israel Folau for most tries in a debut year, uh, which is really phenomenal given you know what an athlete uh, Folau was. Um, Ando, because we have versus Argentina twice in a row now, we've got two wins of pretty similar margins. Um, how do you actually see this performance as being different to last week? What changed between uh, this week and last week? I think that there was really... It, it was an interesting match because we actually started quite poorly. There were a lot of unforced errors and basic mistakes that we were doing that were reminiscent of the Wallabies of old. 
And so the first 15 to 20 minutes, I was really unimpressed by our style of play, but I was, I was hopeful for a kind of revival of fortune for turnaround. And that really came, uh, we dominated from about 25th minute to about the 60th-ish minute of the game. And it was just really great to see that in a time where we uh, were playing properly, getting rid of those silly mistakes and trying to execute the game plan I'd obviously trained, we were incisive and basically put the RGs to the sword. And it was only when Samir Karevi came off and then a few minutes later, Jordi Pitaya got cramped and was unable to continue because we'd emptied the bench early. That's when things went to crap. And I actually, I was actually really happy with that. It, not, not really happy. Um, there is a positive element to how bad we were in the last 15 minutes in that we've had that experience when we were well in front and now that'll be a learning opportunity for them that they can go, okay, we really didn't handle that well. What if this happens in... Uh, a knockout match within the Rugby World Cup. How, how are we going to adjust? How are we going to adapt? And the players will be better for it moving forward. Yeah, exactly right. I think this team has shown that they're really learning from every opportunity they're getting. And this is a great example of that in that, hey, we can win, but we can also see what we should have done better and what we should probably be able to adjust. And I think Rennie was pretty outright in saying that as well, that you know, there's a lot they can take away from how that match finished because you don't always get your own way. Um. We've already waxed lyrical about Andrew Kellaway, but Mitch, were there any standout players from either side that you just thought this is a great performance heading into the spring tour? I don't want to be the negative Nancy, but for me right don't. now, I'm sitting here thinking that there's two players in particular that really stood out to me as being under underwhelming when they came on, and I expected a lot more. And so that was James O'Connor and uh, Jake Gordon. Uh, now, Ando was just saying how he thought it was a good thing that we sort of went to pieces and ended up not losing the game and we'll learn no, no, from it. I said it. there are positives that we can take from <laughs> pretty that sure, thing. I'm pretty That's sure you said it was a good yeah. thing. No, I'm checking. But I, I just, I have a sour taste in my mouth watching the last 20 minutes of that game for how good we were to how badly we we finished that game and how quickly it turned. And... Some of those key players that came on, like James O'Connor, for me, didn't do enough to actually start directing that back line around and um, turning the tide back in our favor. And we sort of looked lost. We did have players out of position, and that was, in, that was unfortunate. But I feel like we should have been better than we were. Yeah, I think that's been spoken about a bit as well. And the score and I guess the manner in which we jumped out to a 32-3 to lead and then sort of just held on. Um, there's been a lot of talk about how the bench probably didn't deliver, and there was so much excitement around, um, you know, Greg Holmes getting his comeback and Sean McMahon, um, you know, both getting a, another chance after quite a long time off. I don't really think either did anything super phenomenal. There's, there's probably no one really on the bench that stood out other than uh, Matt Phillip. I thought he did really well coming on. Yep. Um, Angus Bell's always a workhorse as well, so it's nice to see him, but if we really didn't get that punch um, from the backs like we probably would have expected. Um, and, th and that's something that's good to see now because we're going to get a really different uh, test against Japan coming up. So, you yeah. know, how we try and work with that. Um, the fact that we had to play a game without Karevi, we quickly saw what a difference that makes to the team. So if that's something we've got to do for a little while, then it's good that they're getting that experience now and seeing what options they could probably work with. Um, but to straight back to the positive, Ando, what was the moment that made you shout with joy? Uh, I absolutely loved Ikitao's anger that he showed in the final kind of 30 minutes of the game. Uh, we've been lauding him just for doing things properly, but I think he was getting really frustrated at the breakdown or, or the, the lack of continuity within the uh, backline structure in the 
final parts of the game and he just started wanting to take names he was hitting people hard he was shoving them into the ground after the tackle he looked like somebody had taken his mum out for dinner and not called her back afterwards <laughs> it was something personal and i love seeing it because he's quite he's quite reserved and um seems to be quite composed and that's a very good thing but it's also great to see that he can also raise things up a level because he wasn't reckless within how he was playing it was just an added level of intensity um but another player that i'm really racing and i think has stepped up so much this season is bobby valentini he is by in in my mind just a bit of a revelation number eight after having a full essentially a full season to um bed that jersey down as his own he's been physical he has a huge engine He's running as hard as he can within the kind of 70th, 80th minute as he is in the first or fifth minute. And um, he's also incredibly selfless. I think it was Kellaway's second try where he's the one that makes the bus through. Um, and he could have made the line, but he passes it back on the inside to Kellaway. And I was like, mate, you're just a good bloke as well as being a bloody <laughs> good player. Well done. And I liked as well, as a, as a forward pack, we scored two tries off the same line-out move and pretty much exactly the same was brilliant so that ball quick ball off the top down to Fianga who runs a short line and then offloads to I believe it was Hooper who then links up with the back line so twice we scored points off that on either side of the half too so that was really exciting that was on the 33rd minute for Kelly's first try and then the 42nd minute for his second try which was great to see it was something I wanted to bring up because we spoke in um, the pick and drive live last week with Sarah Nagama how the Wallabies needed to lift their um, set piece work. They needed to make sure that they could really capitalize off that because of the um, the lack of front robbers that uh, Argentina had available to them. And we did see that that was the case. So we scored all of our 15 first half points off set piece, which was really promising. Um, like just the power of that scrum penalty we got to start things off was really impressive to see. Uh, and then we got another five points from it in the second half as well. Just off line out and scrums to score 20 first phase points that's really impressive. So I do like that they could sort of muster up that challenge. And, you know, that's the kind of thing I'd like to see us, you know, keep trying to do against um, probably more detailed teams, mm-hmm. teams that have stricter defenses. So yeah. we get a really good chance to do that against Japan coming up if that's the approach they go to. Um, the other thing I should just mention is um, for Argentina, they haven't had much love this uh, campaign. Um, and they've had a lot of things not go their way, but a nice mention to Thomas Gayo, who got uh, two tries on debut. Yeah. yeah, well done. Supposedly the first time a prop has scored two tries on debut since 1973. Really? Is that for anyone? Is that for anyone? Like anywhere in world rugby? Any country? For any nation. Good. 48 wow. years. Well done. Yeah. big. Something like that. I remember hearing that somewhere. I'm like, wow, that's a we that's a good set to have. We won't go I too guess... intent on the, the second try there and look at the legalities of it, but we'll, no. we'll give it to him. <laughs> we'll give it to him. And, and that's the thing. I, I think whether this is intentional or not, I don't think Jaco Piper had the best uh, game in the world refereeing. I think there was a few inconsistencies and maybe a few things that just he'd range from being really pedantic in some areas and then changing his mind to you know wanting... Certain things look a certain Did, way. Didn't it feel oh. in that second half like he just got really fed up with Australia? And that yeah. yellow card to Hooper on what the 80th minute or the 81st minute was just, he didn't even tell him what it was for. He just like 
sort of looked over his shoulder, was like yellow, and he was just like, oh, okay, and just like wandered off. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit like a sort of Mario Kart setup where like the person coming last has a little bit of, you know, advantage, like, oh, okay, well, you know, we'll just, just make sure it's not too embarrassing. Okay, here we go. Um, not that there was anything that was, you know, cheating or anything. No. It was just more so, not I think there was a lot less um structure. Yeah. And I think that came down to some of the refereeing calls. Yeah. But, you know, I'm very keen to see how we... We mix it up with the um, European referees because we had some really good experiences with the two English referees, mm, Luke yep. Pierce and Matthew Carley. So I think getting a few more examples with them, and um, I know there's a nice mix of Irish referees at the moment, and there's always going to be French referees at World Cup. So as yep. much exposure we can get to them, I haven't seen our current lineup yet. But if we get some of them, that'd be great as, as well, just to see how we fare. Uh, but look, we, we will actually give a bit of mention to the second game this week because I know on the Thursday night live we. We brushed them past because we're having so much fun talking to Sarah, but South Africa really put on a masterclass, um, kind of against all odds, just based on how that first half was going to get the win 31 to 29 over New Zealand. Um, really impressive set of tries in here. Um, I thought the Damien uh, Dearlander try at the start that Am had the flick behind the back pass. It was just beautiful. I was like, oh, that's going to be hard to beat. Um, and then. Bowden Barrett cuts through the line, offloads to Rico Ioani while he's falling, who then breaks three tackles to offload to Adi Sever, who, again, like, it's just, it's beautiful stuff. So this game really did have it all. Um, and those that follow me on Twitter know that my favorite thing in rugby, like, without question, is drop goals. <laughs> I think it's the best thing you can do in a game. So <laughs> the fact that Elton Yankees uh, snapped a drop goal that ended up being pretty... Um, Pretty pretty influential to the yeah. score. He, he had a really good uh, impact on the bench. I, I just thought this game had it all from my perspective. So, given it was still a two-point difference, uh, and I'll keep things with you, how did this change from their last performance? What was so different that South Africa were able to get this one? I think the, the importance was that they were willing to try their hand a bit more and back the skill of their players to actually execute when opportunities were available. And it seemed that when they were in the 50-metre, um, well, within the opposition half, they weren't. Uh, as ready to put up bombs, to put up the midfield bombs or the um, the box kicks to try and force another mistake from the Kiwis. They they kept the ball in hand more so and backed their players. And so that first try to Damien Dierlende, that was opportunistic, but they executed it fantastic in, in a fantastic manner with that just around the back pass by Am was... You just watch it and you're just like, what? You just get <laughs> so excited seeing that come off because it's just natural skill. And there's this part of me that goes, well... If they're that skilled and they've got that intuitive ability to play rugby in that way, why have they been constraining and shackling these players inside such rigid systems for a while? But going back to the question, I think it was more a willingness to back themselves at appropriate times. So they didn't shy away from the kind of DNA of South African rugby over the last 18 months, which is rush, resolute, um, umbrella-style defense combined with box kicks placing heaps and heaps of pressure upon opposition catches and then playing territory they stuck with that and um fafta cloak was central to that but then when they had the opportunity they ex- ex- exploited them and executed incredibly effectively so i think there was just a level of belief that they had that maybe had been lacking they there was a pride at stake they wouldn't go away having lost four games on a trot against new zealand and australia yeah was it three years ago i think when rassi had lost a few in the row and they had the really inevitable task of versing New Zealand. Oh, I shouldn't say versing, sorry. Of uh, playing New Zealand <laughs> in New Zealand. Um, and Rassi said, look, if we lose this one, I'm going to... Um, Resign. You know, 
step down. I'll resign as coach because, you know, it's not uh, good enough for South Africa to lose that many in a row. Uh, and obviously they, they pulled something out of the um, hat for him. I, I think it was pretty similar to this one. Obviously there's so many different um, different circumstances surrounding this because of COVID, but I really think the players were like, no, we are good enough to match it with them. We've just got to really dig in because we don't lose uh, that frequently. We that, That's just not South African. So I thought it was nearly an all-star uh, performance as one player that I didn't think was super great. But let, let's focus on the positives. Mitch, who stood out in this match for you? Yeah, I was really impressed with Elton Jantes when he came on and Franz Steyn. And yeah. um, sort of going back to that last question of what changed for me this week, it really felt like both of these players wanted to win this game. And it came down in those last few minutes. Like this, In the last five minutes, I think, or five or six minutes, the score changed hands or the lead changed hands four times. So it was very much back and forth, back and forth. But it felt like these two players in particular, Elton Jantes and Franz Steen, wanted to win the game and were doing things and taking risks that we haven't seen this Springbok side take in the last few weeks. It very much felt like in previous weeks that they were trusting their systems. They would just keep going with what they were doing, the pick and drives and slowly getting the way up the field, go for a box kick, hopefully turn it back over, get a penalty at the breakdown and kick the points that way. Whereas this week, Elton came on and he's like, no, I'm kicking this field goal now and then we're going to have another crack. And they got back down there and they got the penalty right on full time to win the game. So it, it for me, it felt like these two players had a really different, <clears throat> sorry, a different um, perspective in, in how they wanted to, to finish this game off and that they had come into this game with a different approach and a different thought process of not just backing the system, but uh, taking the control into their own hands and, and sort of dictating how the, the game finished. I think it's really important with um, Yanchis as well as because he was unused last week, he is sort of seen as a bit of a um, erratic player, probably a little bit similar to sort of mid-2010 sort of um, Quade Cooper in, in that sense where his ceiling's super high but his floor's also quite low. And that, like, he is seen as a bit of a risk at times, but um, people are coming around to the idea that he actually does deliver really classy performances when he's given the chance, and he's a bit of a confidence player. So he did really um, turn this game around for them. I was really impressed with how he operated. Um, I guess because neither of these teams are teams that we generally support, maybe unless they're versing a team we dislike. Um, <laughs> we're probably not too excited. And I was pretty happy with whoever won this, but Ando, was there a moment that stood out and that you really you know, jumped for joy? You were excited by this? Uh, I was super happy with Vermeulen's turnover that gave the box possession um, that they then went for the corner and got the penalty right at the end. Vermeulen, in my mind, is growing to be my South Af- favourite South African player. He is He just has an engine. For a guy of his size to play the full 80 minutes and have such an impact even late in the game is absolutely incredible. He's 35. Yeah. He's he's getting on for a professional rugby player, especially number eight, the size he is. Um, he he just seems to be able to do everything. He can take the high balls, he can truck it up, he's sold in defense, he can get pilfers, and he's got a decent enough set of hands as well. So he, in my mind, is I love watching him play and almost exclusively. The battle as well, um, between uh Khaleesi and Adi Sevilla was oh, awesome to watch. So they seem to be targeting each other and just running hard at each other, wanting to kind of make a statement of dominance over the other one, despite the fact that they seem to be good friends off the field, or at least be in really good terms. Um 
well, there are so many players that I could name, but I'll just stick with kind of Khaleesi and Vermeulen as the two that I've really, really enjoyed. I think, just speaking of Vermeulen, Dave really must be licking his lips knowing he's got the chance to work with him for the Barbarians fixture, if that's still going to be able to go ahead, because that is a ridiculous back row that he's already got Matera and Vermeulen sort of locked in for that. I know they were supposed to be playing Samoa, so I'm hoping that they get... Um, you know, some other opposition or some chance to play because play the some of the names they're going to attract for that <laughs> How would, would that be, be fantastic. <laughs> play the Wallabies and Rennie coaches against them. <laughs> well, that's what I'd love is it's a real probables versus possibles. You know, yeah. you get a few, um, you know, uh, players of other nationalities in there, but this is a great chance to get, you know, Quade Cooper versus O'Connor. How do they go against each other? That sort of thing. Just to see how they're shaping. But bring back, um, look, bring back Matt Gitto as well for it. Yeah, I'd love that. Still one of my favorite players. Just an absolute freak. Like a swan song. Um, so from this, we probably can just get into our thoughts on the rugby championship as a whole. Yep. We yep. did mention that um, the ladder did have a bit of a shake-up base of what we were thinking sort of two rounds in. We did end up with New Zealand pretty clearly on top. Uh, Argentina were pretty clearly at the bottom. <laughs> and then it was a bit of a tussle between us and South Africa in the middle. Um, they obviously did a bit better against uh, New Zealand, so they got a win and a losing bonus point as well, which did keep them quite close to us, despite us having the extra win. Um, but all in all, I think the table probably reflected how the teams are at the moment. Um, New Zealand do seem really quite uh, consistent. They're going through um, a whole heap of changes to their players, but they're all you know world-class, so it's not too big an issue. South Africa have a really world-class team. They didn't make many changes from their World Cup side, but they also had a lot of issues to contend with, with travel, COVID, being in a bubble for a bit over three months. So... They were sort of as expected. And then Argentina really just sort of fell apart with, um, you know, issues in being disrespected in Townsville and going to Byron Bay when they shouldn't have. It really did sort of loom as a great opportunity for Australia to um, do better in the rankings than we perhaps thought. And they really did. So it's great to see. And uh, with this, this is clearly a better table performance than we were expecting before this all started. But should Australians just be over the moon with this finish? Is this as good as we could have expected? I think realistically, yes, considering where our team was prior to this and where we were at the end of the Bledisloe series. Um, coming into it, I was predicting that we won't... If, if we were to get one game, win one game against New Zealand, or what well, basically, I wanted us to beat Argentina twice and then win two other games either against New Zealand, one against New Zealand, one against South Africa, whatever. And we ended up getting that. So I'm super happy with it. And the fact that we're able to get a, two, like two games in a row defeat of South Africa, like that's really, really hard to do. And we were fairly comprehensive with both of those wins. It wasn't like we were lucky to scrape away and didn't deserve well, it. We that, deserved both that of them. that first one, then. Well, yeah, but either way, we were definitely <laughs> we, within the fight. But we kicked and them. Yeah, it wasn't decisive, though. Kicked a penalty yeah, after full time. Um, the second one, second one without a shadow of a doubt. Oh, was for it. sure. Yeah, um, and so within that, I just think that we couldn't have expected much more from our team prior to the competition because we hadn't shown it in 2020. Our performances against New Zealand had been fairly insipid, realistically. And this was a young team or a team that was on a trajectory and on a growth path towards being a good team and we weren't there yet and so now i think we can genuinely say we're a good team i won't say that we're great challenging for like top one two in the world or anything like that uh, a big marker will be how we go against particularly england in the spring tour that'll be that'll be a real test um but i mean we also have to remember that we've played all of our games in queensland at home 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> except for the butterfly ones. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot to be said for home ground advantage. If we can continue these performances and maybe inclusive of Japan, snag the a really success a really successful tour will be three out of four wins. So um, maybe losing to England but beating Japan, Scotland, and Wales that'll be really good. Um, imagine if we got the four of four. How good would that be? They'd be sitting seven think- from seven straight. Eight, eight straight. Oh, we're on four now, aren't we? Sorry, yeah, eight yeah. straight. Oof. <coughs> Chills. Which would be crazy. I mean, Chills. I think that would level ourselves with our best uh, Rayburn Shield run. I think we got eight in a row yep. back in the day, which, um, you know, it would be great to be able to sort of contend with that. Um, I think one of the things that's been interesting is Australian fans, generally speaking, are very good at, um, you know, getting behind the Wallabies when they're winning, but also yep. uh, shooting them down when they're not. And my concern probably at the moment is that uh, fans that might not have seen that many of the games are looking just at the world rankings and probably expecting a little bit too much Mm, um, from this spring tour. And it'll be interesting because, you know, Wales, I think, are ranked around ninth at the moment. But realistically, they beat us the last two times we've played. They've got a new coach as well. They're trialling a few new things as well. So there is that sort of difference. And same for Scotland. Um, They embarrassed us. What was it, fifty three to twenty four or something like that? Like that is a really disgusting loss to a team like Scotland. No offense, but that was the game <laughs> in Newcastle in the rain. Is that the uh, one? Well, you that, were that was another to? lot. That that's was a like, different game. Oh, was okay. that 9-8, I think? Yeah, um, that's right. We lost that we one. We lost that one. Yeah, but, yeah. No, that, that game. Uh, I'm getting upset and teary just thinking about <laughs> it. So I, I think there's plenty to chat through with that. We'll probably try and do a rugby Royal Rumble. Um, about that spring tour once yeah. we see that squad. But Mitch, just keeping with the season so far with the rugby championship, um, we're now obviously looking quite good. Do you think if we were to do that again, that we would get pretty similar results? Or do you think that we would got lucky against South Africa? Like some of these results do seem, um, you know, quite different. I, I, as soon as we beat South Africa, wanted to play New Zealand because I thought we'd do better. But does that ladder seem pretty reflective of how the teams are at the moment, or did we get a little lucky? Oh, you can't say we got lucky because we did it twice in a row. So we were good enough to do it again the next week. We didn't, there wasn't some sort of lightning strike that knocked someone over and we ended up diving on a ball to win um, under unusual circumstances. So I, I don't think that we, we can be said that we're lucky to beat South Africa twice. I, I think. South Africa really were preparing for their games against New Zealand. And we've probably seen that from the last two week performances that they've gone down to, to within three points of New Zealand. We haven't come close to that this year. Um, but there's such a contrast between the Wallabies team that played France and New Zealand in the rugby, in uh, the Bledisloe, than this team that played uh, South Africa and Argentina. Samu Karevi and Quade Cooper have brought a whole new life into this team and players are gelling in a completely different way. So part of me thinks that if we did it again, we would get the same results. Uh, I'm also confident that we would get closer to New Zealand were we to play them again next week. But I don't want to do that. I don't think we need to do that. Um, I think it's going to be better for this team to play together against opposition that is closer in skill level to us, have closer games to be able to grow and develop then going up against New Zealand where we think we're doing well and we're, we're playing good rugby, but we're still not good enough to beat New Zealand. So um, I think it 
it's great that we're sort of hitting our straps now going into this uh, summer, the spring tour um, and that we're not sort of looking at another Bledisloe Cup three, four games against New Zealand coming up. So I think it's good. Does that answer the question? (laughs) Yes, it does. It does. Um, It's funny just thinking back because I've sort of been looking at the table and because my expectations are so different to what's happened, when we're doing the team scores out of 10, it's hard to determine, well, obviously New Zealand did the best, but based off their own expectations and based off, you know, what these teams might have thought coming into it. I haven't actually put a number to these teams to see how they have gone, but I think it's fair to say that New Zealand probably did as expected. Australia performed better than expected. South Africa probably slightly worse than expected. Mm-hmm. And Argentina, um, you know, we probably don't worse than talk, expected. We probably they don't they need to weren't expected Argentina. to win the comp, but they would have liked a win for sure. They would have liked to have built from 2020. So, Ando, do we have some scores out of 10 that you'd be willing to give um, these four teams? And maybe Mitch and I can sort of bounce off them to see if you're mm. on the money or if we need to, you know, put you in the loony bin. Yeah, yeah I'll um, preface my my rankings or my, my scores with, I'm, I'm kind of doing it relative for what each team would have been expecting, mm. okay? So I would probably say New Zealand are about an 8 out of 10 yeah. um, relative for what they were expecting. They wouldn't have wanted to have lost that last game. They would be aiming for a clean sweep and dominating the opposition the whole time. Um, the closeness of the encounters against South Africa would be um, disappointing for their standards. So I'd be saying about an eight, eight, yeah, kind of on the way to nine, but stay at yeah. eight. Sure. Um, for Australia, I think we'd probably be at about a seven. And the reason is, well, obviously we came second, so that's fantastic. But we we didn't put in a near to complete performance the entire series. Um, and we were very poor against New Zealand as well. So I think when we combine those two things, despite a lot of the things we've already spoken about on previous pods, there being reasons for it, it's a learning opportunity, it's a team that's growing into and learning what the coaching team are wanting. Yeah, I'd still say about a seven. South Africa, I'd say that they were really poor on this tour. Like, yeah, great. They had a fantastic game. One of the games of Test Rugby history on Saturday night. Incredible match. But outside of that, they were really, really poor against Australia. They weren't amazing against Argentina as well. So I'd be aiming to give them about a five or a six mm-hmm. out of mm-hmm. ten. Um, and then for Argentina, they've got to be at about a four. Four yeah. out of ten or three out of... Yeah, four. We'll say four. I think that's all pretty fair. Yeah. I, I do like that... We should still we should still wheel them off to the loony bin, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it can never hurt just to get the checkup. Yeah. But... Um, I mean, I, th- I think what I like is that you didn't just hinge it on the recency bias, and I have seen that come through a bit where people are like, oh, yeah, Wallabies, you know, that's a 10 out of 10. And I'm like, well, no, actually, did you remember how we went against New Zealand? Like, that's part of the rugby championship. Like, they're pretty poor performances. They don't count. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I once, like, I'd say the second game against South Africa was nearly a perfect performance mm. for the Wallabies. I was really happy with how dominant yep. we were against a team that good. But you're right, in all the other matches... We could have been a bit more ruthless. Yeah. Um, yeah. We could have done things better. But I, I think that's pretty on the money. Um, and I think that does sort of factor into how good New Zealand is. Like the fact that that's an 8 out of 10 performance, yet they're, you know, wiping the floor with some teams and then, yep. you know, playing without a host of their first string players and still 
um, beating the best team in the world. It's really awesome to yeah, see. I, would, so. I was just going to say on, on New Zealand, I would probably give them an 8.5 to a 9 just when you take into yeah. account the fact that they didn't have Richie Mawanga for a lot of their rugby champs games in Australia. They um, didn't have a lot of, like they didn't have their captain, uh, Sam Keynes back in New Zealand. So there's a few plays they're missing. And the fact that they only lost by two points against South Africa, they were still very well in control of that game up until that final whistle. So I don't think for them, like they, they'd wrapped up the rugby champs by then. So they'd love to have gone a clean sweep, but I don't think for them it was as miserable of them losing that game as um, if they had potentially lost the rugby champs. So um, yeah, I'd give them an 8.5 or... Are you tempted to bump up Australia a little bit because we did so well without that many Reds players? Like, we were being pretty generous to the other teams and only playing sort of three Reds players at a time. So Imagine what we could have done with uh, Harry Wilson on the field. Like, exactly. That would just be incredible. I, I mean, know, we, I... we lost a trick by not getting Ryan Wanigan on the field. I mean, if we'd had Ryan Wanigan, we would have been top of the table. Well, we at least would have had more points with kicking. <laughs> this is true. Actually, that's one of the things that really concerned me a bit. Like, Cooper had one gun game, but then his radar has been off pretty badly since that match um and and it is a bit of a concern that there's a lack of consistency within his kicking i mean say what you will like i'm, I'm i am joking but about players like ryan wanigan will harrison's more consistent um noah lolosio in the france series across those three games was incredible like they've shown a bit more consistency and i just hope that that's an area that quade can uh, again if he continues his 10 moving forward um be a little bit more consistent with because we left way too many points on the field against Argentina. Yeah, I was wondering on the Absolutely. weekend if they actually brought the wrong Lonigan brother on. So they've taken <laughs> Geordie Pattaya off and they've just replaced him with Lonigan. So you go, oh yeah, that's fair enough. Ryan Lonigan, he could probably fit in the back line somewhere. Oh, it's not Ryan Lonigan, it's the other one. It's the pro- <laughs> it's the hooker. <laughs> it's lucky, it's not It's lucky. And look, this with the mention of NOS, I'll, I'll leave this as a bit of a tease, but I think that segues really well into some of our news. So how about we leave that for our rugby championship chat yep. and we get into our spicy news. All right, let's go. All right, there is some big news which has dropped this evening or today on Monday regarding the move to a centralized model for rugby in Australia. So that has not yet been decided. It got leaked in an exclusive by Christy Doran, which i got to say, I really like it a lot of what Christy is doing when he's doing a bit more of the investigative journalism within rugby. But when he's doing the sensationalist stuff, I think his quality dips. Mm. Um, and I just really don't rate it. But this was a great get from him. So well done, Christy. This is an awesome article and um, really good insight and information that you've been able to grab from Rugby Australia here. Basically, what they're talking about is that Rugby Australia is going to be moving towards a more centralized model where the appointment of coaches, strength and conditioning staff, um, management of player contracts, and even to some extent, organization of which players play for which clubs, that is going to be more than it has been in the past handled by Rugby Australia. And, and, um, and marketing and branding too, which I thought yeah, was a really interesting one. That's yeah. really weird. Yeah, which really I think weird. is... Well, we'll talk about it all in a minute. So there's Every a little bit more information to go with it as well. Um, so it's not yet decided. Uh, Hamish McLennan is the main driver of this. He's aiming to have it completed by the end of the year and try and leverage a bit of the goodwill that the current Wallabies victories are placing or creating within Australian rugby. Uh, there are a lot of benefits or opportunities that could be had from this system. So it could mean that um, 
players such as Jordan Pataya, who was seen as a potential 15 option with a national setup, he's unlikely to be playing 15 at the Reds next year because they've got Jock Campbell, who's been a bit of a stalwart there for the last couple of seasons. Um, and so it may well be that in that type of situation, RA organizes for Pataya to move, say, to the Waratahs, where we don't have a locked-in 15. So maybe he's the person there that goes to develop moving forward. Something like that. So supposedly, according to this article, the, uh, each, each of the Super Rugby franchises are on board and the state-based unions are on board with it too. Some details need to be nutted out. But let's just let's throw this one to you starting off, Rev. What were your initial thoughts when you saw this information coming out? Were you kind of like, I'm scared and excited? <laughs> um, I think I was... I was actually quite excited. I wasn't too scared until I started talking about it and sort of speaking with it to um, my brother and just sort of saying, well, with the decisions to move players across, are these sort of unanimous decisions, how much of a say does a player get? Are they doing this before the season starts? Or do we have a bit more of a loose, oh, okay, we've had um, you know six injuries and we're in round eight, let's get this player across here. Um, so I think it's it's raised a lot more questions than answers at the moment, which is really exciting because... I mean, half of podcasting is just spitballing different ideas and just <laughs> <laughs> bounce them off each other to see what we like. So That's um, generous half. Wow. Yeah. More than that. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I'm really liking uh, the talk of it. I do think that if we're basing it off um, other countries that have centralized models, New Zealand, obviously, they're world leaders in terms of how their players um, operate. Like, their five Super Rugby teams could go to any competition and be really dominant. Um, I think Ireland have shown really big improvements with their club system. And currently in the Pro 14, really, I think you could make a case for Ulster, Munster, and Leinster all being probably top four teams um, on any given day. So there is something that works. But I think the interesting thing will be how much identity do these two rugby sides retain if we're you know being told what to do and who to sign and um, who to bring in. Because you know, some coaches just have a really good way of building relationships without being told what to do. Um, so... I guess the response is, I'm very keen to watch this like a hawk and to see how we move on from here. Mitch? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I think it's a good thing. Um, speaking a little bit to Rev's point, I would imagine that Rugby Australia would operate in some kind of similar way to how the NRL work in that they've got deadlines for when and like transfer windows for when players can move from team to team. I would hate to see the situation arise where all of a sudden the Brumbies lose their first three uh, hookers and so all of a sudden the Reds have to release their hooker to go down to the Brumbies for the rest of the season because that that's not going to build continuity at all. That's probably going to go backwards. So I imagine they do something around that, around sort of certain time frames and windows and that sort of thing. But overall, I think it's a really good move forward and it will... I can only see it benefiting Australia. I can't... It, one of the biggest frustrations that we have as rugby fans at the moment... And we've spoken about this before on the pod is around some of the player decisions and signings. So earlier this year, the the Brumbies announced that they've signed Jesse Mogg to come back for 2022. Yet they've got the incumbent Wallabies 15 player, Tom Banks, already on the books. How much game time are both those players going to see? Are they going to share the position? It just it asks questions when you've got teams like the Waratahs, the Rebels, who don't have a out and out 15 position lockdown from anyone. Um, so 
My my thought is that this can only be good for Australian rugby because it will see us be able to develop combinations. We'll be able to move players around in more of a, a national setup approach. So we'll be able to see players get more game time in the positions that Dave Rennie wants them or the current Wallabies coach wants them to be playing in. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic. I think it, it's going to be good. I'm looking forward to it. I think there's a lot, a lot positive to be said for the opportunity for there to be more IP sharing between the different teams. Uh, we've seen the Waratahs really be a basket case over the last few years um, for many kind of what seem to be structural reasons. And whilst I don't think Rugby Australia are kind of shining knights of virtue within that region, the, they have pulled their act together in the last couple of years um, and, and seem to be guiding and governing the game with a lot more maturity, a lot more foresight and a lot more collaboration between teams rather than this kind of like siloed system where no team is speaking to another and nobody's looking towards the end product, which within a national scene is obviously the Wallabies. So I'm quite hopeful for greater collaboration, greater sharing of intellectual um, property and ideas on what we can be doing to improve the game of rugby within Australia as a whole, whilst obviously keeping some trade secrets to yourself, but in overall just helping players develop within the ecosystem of Australian rugby, not just the Waratahs, not mm. just the Rebels, not just the Force, it's so on and so forth. That was a really good point um, brought up by a couple of Force fans on Twitter who were particularly concerned with um, the last time Rugby Australia had control over the future of uh, the Western Force, which is completely legitimate. So, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure they've got a guaranteed contract within the system now for the next seven, ten years or something like that. Um, it but... does raise another question too around how do you have a privately owned and run club that now sits under the umbrella of Rugby Australia that has to adhere to the same rules as all the other uh, other four teams. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've got private ownership pl- payments going under the table potentially to players. And if there is a salary cap, we don't know if the force technically fall in it. They're signing all these great players. How does that work in Australian rugby sort of plan moving forward? That's for smarter people than me to figure out, but mm. I'm sure there is a way. Um, well, why don't we keep going forward because we do have a couple of other pretty big things we want to talk through as well. So Rennie, Dave Rennie is going to be naming the spring tour squad of around about 32 to 36 players um, later this week. So Samir Karevi is going to be touring with the squad as of news that came out today. His injury was not as long-term as suspected. It may well just be kind of two to four weeks. Injury, which means he'll miss the Japan game. May will be back for the first of the European matches once we get over there. Um, so we will leave any conversation around the makeup of that squad uh, until that information actually becomes available. There are a couple of questions within the locker room that will touch on that. So I'll just I, mention it. Can I just ask, how many, how many players do we have in the squad currently? It's like 40-something, isn't it? Yeah. So we're re- yeah. renaming a smaller squad to go to Europe. 36? For a three, I believe we're naming 32 or 34, but um, we'll be picking up a couple of European-based players yeah. to bolster it once we're over there. Interesting. I was hoping that we might see an expanded squad going over to get more players' time. That's what I was hoping, but yeah. I, I think a bunch of it might be cost as well. Every player that you take extra is, I don't know, 20 grand more, probably, for the tour length. Like Just sell 20, more chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll try, mate. I'll try. <laughs> um, and so, let's moving forward. Uh, Rev, we do actually have 
the All Blacks squad. So they've got a game against America, which is first off before they then travel to Europe. Are there any interesting selections that have happened with the All Blacks squad? There is one nice bolter. And we did hear a few people on Twitter saying, in terms of bolters, this may be the most boltiest bolter that's ever bolted. Um, <laughs> in that we've got Josh Lord uh, coming into the New Zealand setup. He's played a handful of games for the Chiefs, but he's only a young uh, man. He's 20 years old. Uh, only made his NPC debut in 2019. I think what they like about him is that he's 202 centimetres tall. He's already got quite a solid frame um, for some of that young as well. Uh, but it is interesting given they've given time in the squad to Mitch Dunshay, Quentin Strange, Parry Parry Parkinson. They're not short of locks. Um, so it is interesting to see him given a chance with Scott Barrett and Patrick Tuipilotu uh, sending this tour out for personal reasons. Um, the other returns to the squad are Shannon Frizzell, Sam Whitelock, Dane Coles, and Sam Kane. So that's plenty of experience options. There's over 200 caps of experience easily just with those four. Um, the interesting thing, I think, will be how they use the rest of the squad. Because some of the names, as I was looking through, I was thinking, oh, these aren't even new people in the squad. They just haven't been seen in a while. So players like Ethan DeGroote, Tyrell Lomax, Oscar Satutu, Finlay Christie, and Braden Enor, they've had pretty limited minutes. So I'd like to think that you'd probably see all five of them get some time against uh, America and then maybe just see if any of them can sort of fight their way back into the frame. For some of the bigger matches, especially because Lomax, uh, Satutu and Enor really were getting quite a lot of minutes last year. One of the interesting developments which has happened as well is that the Samoa has decided to not be travelling to Europe. Now, I believe that is due to fears of COVID. Is that correct, gentlemen? Um, uh, no, so that I, wasn't yeah, it. So that, wasn't it around yeah, not being able to get players to go out of New Zealand, like enough players to I, make up a squad? I haven't actually seen this, so that sounds that sounds accurate. That's um, what I thought. Rev, Mitch, but, do you guys have more information about this? Yeah, really, just about how um, so many of their players are based in New Zealand, and the ones that are based in Europe, um, they're wrapped up in other competitions at the moment as well. So there isn't really that much opportunity to get them all. Um, I guess, involved for this. And I think mixed with the cost and mixed with trying to also develop a team for the Moana Pacifica side next year, I think there's Doesn't probably enough New Zealand rugby reason day? to keep them local. <laughs> let's uh, let's save our opinions about <laughs> Moana Pacifica just being a satellite team of New Zealand rugby for a later, <laughs> later episode. Um, e- e- either way, guys, that's obviously really disappointing for Samoa because they it, it would be a great opportunity for them to be getting more games in and developing some of their players and the team environment as a whole. Uh, but we do need to move on because the pod has been spanning a lengthy period of time and we do want to get to the locker room. So why don't we move on in now? Let's go. All right, we get to possibly the best part of the night, which is the locker room, where we get to respond to your questions, comments, and banter that will be coming in across the socials. Thank you very much. And we will start off uh, jumping onto the Facebook and the questions that come in there. Dave Chilton asks, should the focus on Spring Tour be continuing winning momentum, even if that means going with veterans and overseas players, or should it be more about developing the young talent and building to the World Cup? Obviously, ideally, we could do both, but do you take and play with Lucio or keep with Quade Cooper and James O'Connor? Same with Slipper et al. versus Bell. Mitch, what do you think on that one? I think we very well can do both. Um, uh, rug- what we've heard snippets, and Morgan Turner mentioned it a few weeks ago, 
that Rugby Australia is very much looking into the Australia A program for next year. So I would not be surprised if next year we have two or three tests lined up against some sort of Pacific Island nations for an Australian A program. If that is the case, I would think that at the moment we probably stick with James O'Connor and, and Quade Cooper as our starting tens. And this weekend, particularly, we saw that when James O'Connor came on, the sort of game plan fell apart. So it wasn't as a convincing performance as we were all hoping. Um, so I think definitely there's a lot of time on this tour to get the right mix between Jock and Quade Cooper. Uh, play Lalesio if we really can but maybe we wait till next year for the Australia A program and, and get him some experience there. Rev, quick opinion? Um, I think just picking the best team. Uh, it'd be great to get some minutes of the young guys, but I think we can see that winning's just such a great thing for the team mentality and for the fans. So whatever the best team is, whether it's young or old, let's put them out. Easy. Douglas Gardner, atmosphere down at Seabus was great, especially for the second game. Auckland West really turned up. And it was nice to catch a train with happy Aussie fans and disappointed Kiwis. I think the overseas refs were a good injection into the rugby championship, and it seemed like they caught a few players and teams out with different interpretations. Mm. I thought overall they were pretty good. I thought Yako Piper was probably the weakest of the three. Um, but that being said, I don't think he cost... I, I don't think a referee cost either team. Um, a game or any team game. To be, to and, be fair on Yako, though, he only had one game in the whole tournament. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. So he wasn't able to work himself into it. Yeah. Um, didn't have that continuity. Now, obviously, that's a comment. We've already spoken a little bit about the referees, so let's just continue on. Chris Lamb. The Kiwis play so much more rugby than Wallaby players. Yeah, correct. On the basis, on that basis, I wonder how the Bledisloe Cup would look next year. It was held at the tail end of the rugby championship, giving our players more cohesion and game time heading into those matches. Mitch. Brilliant idea. Fantastic. Or if we're not going to play them after the rugby championship, just play it as a one-off test. Don't play the three. Yeah. Just play it as a one-off and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, some really good questions both that are coming those. around about the nature of uh, the Bledisloe, both in timing and um, yeah. format of it. Uh, partly it's because we've been getting spanked for so many years. I think there needs to be a change. Um, and partly, no, actually it's mostly because we've been getting spanked for so long. But anyway, let's continue on. Dave Chilton. Uh, Gordon had a shocker Again, and we lost back. all structure and, and go forward when he and Jock came on. Lots of injury for subs led to loss of structure too, but it looked like they hadn't even trained together. White and McDermott are clear class above based on this game alone. Well, I think if you just base something on this game alone, that's not a fair way of judging players' abilities. I'll say that, Dave, my good friend. I'll give you crap about this later. <laughs> um, but I also think that you just hate Jake Gordon. Um, so there's something about that. The, I, I think it's really difficult to judge the players' performances from the weekend in, from the final 20 minutes of the match. There were so many issues with the structure and the composition of our backline because of Karevi and Pataya's injuries and the early um, substitutions that we did that it was really, really difficult. Like, I don't even know where um, Lockie Lonergan was playing for the final parts of the match. Can somebody tell me what position blindside. he was actually playing? He was playing blindside flanker. And Hooper okay. was playing on the wing. So Hooper was on the wing. Yeah, and Samu was seven. Yes, it was like, even just looking at that, it, there was just so many issues in the structure. You even yeah. had um, Scotty Wiseman still on the field in one break, like just clearly telling them where people were playing. It was like, yeah. it, it just reminded me of like age grade level. Yeah, it really looked at one point like he came on and said, all right, so Hooper or um, Nos, one of you is playing on the, in the wing. Who wants to do it? And they were kind of looking at each other and talking and there was some like 
yeah. f- fingers <laughs> pointing and stuff. And it was sort of, okay, look, you'll pack in the scrum. I'll go and stand on the wing. Cool. And then off yeah. Cooper trotted. <laughs> so I think that, um, that, look, it, I personally believe it's a little bit harsh to say Gordon had a shocker and we lost all structure and go forward when he and Jock came on. We, we actually lost all structure because of injury forced issues within a team. It wasn't because of Gordon and Jock. But I also don't think that they played particularly effectively and actually um, mm. were able to impose themselves upon that disrupted and but fragmented structure. Have, has Jock and Gordon played it all together before? No. Ever? No, I don't think so. Yeah, uh, so. Gordon off the bench last year when Jock was starting, but yeah, I don't think they've ever come on together to start. So Yeah, yeah I wonder if it's... I think we mentioned it in, the, um, in Pick and Drive Live about potentially it being an injury-forced... Um, inclusion of Gordon on the bench instead of Tate, maybe. Anyway, uh, Lincoln Adler, is Tupo chewing gum or game? Yes, he is. And with Karevi potentially out, should the Wallabies be taking Izzy Parisi and Hunter on tour? I'll say this one, Hunter will be going on tour. No, Shadow of Parisi. Uh, Rev, what do you reckon about Izzy? Yeah, I, I think he should. Um, I, I think he was probably the form 13 of Super Rugby Trans-Tasman, so we were all keen to see how he had performed. Obviously, uh, Lennox shot the lights out and he's looking really good, but I mean, any competition is great, so let's get Izzy on tour as well. Easy. From Jason play, Sherman, is Rennie now him in the, honorary... Sorry, I just want to quickly... <laughs> just quickly, play him in the Barbarians game. That would be fun. That would be fun to see. Jason Sherman, is Rennie now an honorary Queenslander? Rev? I mean, now that Mitch is, I guess Rennie may as well be as well. If you're letting just Mitch handing be, them out, yeah. Be a... <laughs> yeah, they're just handing them out. <laughs> Not citizenships, uh, though. Okay, let's quickly stick with Jason as well because he sent another question through. Thoughts on a team we sent to Japan? Uh, I think we should be sending a B team similar to what we played against France with the main 15 going directly to Europe. Uh, and then he provides a team list below. I personally don't think that we should be playing a B team against Japan. They're too good for us to send a B team and for us to just assume that we're going to win. Rev, how do you think we're going to be balancing the... Um, the need for rest that a few of our starting players are going to have, but also the need to continue our winning ways. Yeah, I saw Jason's team and saw that a few of those names are probably people that Rennie will leave at um, Australia just to have that full pre-seasons. But I do think if it is a game that you're going to give a few minutes to some of those other squad members, uh, it's a pretty good chance to. I think Rennie's shown that he doesn't treat opposition that differently. He is going to be pretty keen to put out uh, what he thinks is... Um, you know, someone that's in his best 30 players. I don't necessarily think it's the case of, oh, okay, well, I haven't given a cap to Pony or Muirhead or um, Vinavalu yet, so they'll just have one. I think he will still try and put out the best team possible. And if they happen to be in it, that's great. But I think um, other than maybe three to five maximum sort of changes, I'd like it to be pretty similar to what we're seeing uh, week yep. in, week out at the Rugby Championship. Yep, fair. Uh, let's go to Mitch with a question from Nicholas Hill. What centre pairing or backline would you run if Karevi is out injured? So let's assume this is for Japan. Uh, who are you? Who are you playing at twelve and thirteen for the Japan game? Um, yep. I would be playing Karevi's out. Ikitao thirteen, and I'd I'd slingshot um, Parisian for what? twelve. Just because, I mean, I'd. I think we need to test, see how Parisi is going to go. And no disrespect to Japan as a nation, I don't think we're going to necessarily um, just walk, shop and win. But we probably won't be caught up as easily against Japan as we would against any of the other European-based sides. And that's just purely because of the the nation that they are in terms of the rugby 
world. Um, so I think if we're going, that would be the perfect opportunity to test Parisi and see if he's at the required level and is able to gel with Ikitao. Um That's why I'd personally be doing it. Um, and then yeah, sure. hopefully Karevi's ready for the first test in Europe. I think that one of the things that Parisi would bring, which is similar to um, Simon Karevi, is his ability to stand up in a tackle and draw players in to provide time for our attack structures to reset. So there are a few times where our attack broke down, maybe the opposition were able to spoil the ball really well, and he just passed it out to Samu. And he either makes a break from nothing, or he's able to kind of just keep his legs pumping, standing in a tackle for about two or three seconds post-contact, get down, play the ball back, and then our team is ready to kind of set up the next few phases of play and I think Izzy Parisi is probably the best replacement to be able to do that element of his game now a couple of other questions that we're going to be finishing up on uh, and they're really really fun to go through so let's start off with Nelson Dale here so thanks Nelson for getting in touch with a more centralized system so based upon the rugby Australian news that we were talking about before which fullback would you send to the Tars the 2020 super rugby champions <laughs> and why uh, Rev let's start with you mate I think for me, it comes down to two players. Um, so I'll, I'll let maybe Mitch say the other if he wants to, but Jesse Mogg for me would be the one that I'd send there. As you already mentioned, Tom Banks is the starting 15 for the Wallabies. Uh, they've also got Tom Wright in their squad, who we've already talked about as being a potential 15 option as well. I just don't think they need him there. Um, the other thing is he's 32, and what do the Waratahs need? An old head in the back line. They need someone yeah, experienced. So I think he makes the most sense to send to the Waratahs um, in the fullback role. Mitch, your thoughts? Were you was your second player Jordy Pattaya? No, it was it was Jock Campbell. Um, okay, only because uh, he's too valuable to give away. I I don't think any team deserves <laughs> Jordy Pattaya, but the Reds, you can have Jock Campbell. But um, yeah, I, I'm personally not sold on Pattaya at the moment. I think he's too yeah, you hate prone. Pattaya, mate. Yeah, I don't hate what, Pattaya. I don't hate anyone. He's done nothing wrong. I just think he's too injury prone at the moment, and that was <laughs> some of the reason that the Wallabies fell apart on the weekend. Um. But yeah, I agree with what you were saying, Rev. We need a really experienced player at the at fullback. So uh, if we're looking within Australia, I'm not too sure who I'd really like. No one yeah. jumps out at me as the player to take. So let's bring in Curtly Bill. Oh, nice. <laughs> That'd be interesting. No, I'm I'm done with the Curtly era. I think he <laughs> he brought a lot, but I'm I'm happy for us to move on. Uh, I think Jesse Mogg's a big shout, a great shout. I didn't even consider him. I was just thinking purely Jock Campbell, Jordy Pattaya. But that's a really really good call. Um, because he does. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I'm sold on that. That's happening. <laughs> okay. Cool. So we've decided that we're bringing Jesse Mogg to the Tars and Rev. Thank you by um, implicitly acknowledging that the Tars will be the 2022 Super Rugby Champions. Yep. Really All appreciate right. it. Moving forward, <laughs> uh, Rugby Reg has got in touch and added on to that even further. What one player would you shift to each team that would strengthen them? So Rev, sticking with you, mate. All right. Um, I, I did think about this for a little bit because I think. There's a few for different ones, but I thought these players would make the least disruption to the teams I'm taking them from and also bolster the team. So for the Waratahs, I'd give them Darcy Swain. Uh, the Brumbies still have Nick Frost and Caden Neville, two players in the Wallabies squad. Um, and they're, you know, a really top team anyway. So I think giving them, uh, giving the Waratahs a top lock like that would really help them. Uh, for the Western Force, I'd give them Connell McInerney. I think uh, Fletty Kaitu is their only good hooker. I really dislike Andrew Reddy. Um, his off-the-ball stuff has just been terrible the last few years, and he was a promising talent, but he's not that anymore. 
And Jack Winchester is just too young. So they need another hooker. The Brumbies have three that are in the Wallabies squad or thereabouts. So um, good development for him to go to the force. Uh, for the Rebels, I'd give them uh, Ilisai and Dracessi, just because I think he's probably not going to start for the Reds. But they need a strike weapon uh, wing now that Marika corinbetti has gone overseas. Uh, it seems like uh, Callaway's got to have a sort of mortgage on that 14 jersey. I'd like to see Indra Sessi get a bit of game time for them. And he, he's shown that he can mix it with the best. It's just that he's behind Felipe Dunguno and Jordi Pattaya up here. Uh, for the Brumbies, I'd give them Carlo Tizano. I think their back line is unreal, but they do need a genuine open side. And Rory Scott's good and developing. But if Carlo Tizano stuck behind Michael Hooper, it'd make all the sense in the world to benefit both teams and Carlo personally if he went to the Brumbies and tried to get a, a lockdown seven jersey. And then for the Reds, I'm going to bring back James Slipper just because he is a Reds favourite. The Brumbies already have Scott Seo, um, so I'd like to see him come in because I think the Reds, probably one position where they could benefit from just a better starter would be loose head prop. Um, so who better to get the best loose head prop in the game? How good. What a return that would be for James Slipper going back to the Reds. That'd be that'd be a storyline right there, Mitch. Who are you, who are some of your players that you would consider? Oh, geez, I haven't got like the extensive list that Revs. Just, no, just like, just a couple. Up. So um, we've thrown this I, at you quite late. Yeah, I I I am. Um, I'm thinking I would send Swinton down to Melbourne, so down to the Rebels. I think that they would he would do well there, considering we've also got back. Um, well, Ned we've got Carlo Tizano. We've got Ned Hadigan, who's a six foot. 6-5 at the moment, so he could play either of those positions. We've also got Jed Holloway as well, who's also a hybrid back row. Um, so we've got that area covered. Uh, they, I think more game time for Swinton would do better for the Rebels. Uh, in terms of, not necessarily in terms of strengthening uh, the team he's going to, but I would love to see uh, Feliti Kaitu'u go to either the Brumbies or the Reds purely for the experience that he would get playing with the Wallabies <clears throat> playing with the Wallabies props. So I really yeah, think that cool. Felite Kaitu has a really good future ahead of him. Um, and the more time that he could get playing super rugby with props of the Wallab like the Wallabies props, the better. So I think that he would be a really great option to be playing at either the Reds or uh, down at the Brumbies. Yeah, Outside cool. of that, maybe just purely from a um a fan, Waratahs fan perspective. I'd love to see Callaway come back to the Waratahs at fullback. How good would that be? That would be so um, Or even Hodge, to be honest. Even Hodge, because he's a Northern Beaches boy, isn't he? Um, they're, well, they're both. They're, they're both um, from yeah. Sydney. But yeah. at the moment, I'd take Callaway over Hodge. Yeah, yeah. Me too. Me too. Um, my, the one I was going to say was um, Kawa Tizano as well. And I was going to be sending him either to the Brumbies or to the Rebels. But the development opportunity being a Brumbies player, I think, is greater. But so I think that's a really Rebels good have Hardwick. Yeah, mm. uh, but I just think the improvement, uh, the the ceiling for Tizano is higher than Hardwick. Even though I really, I really like him. Um, I think Hardwick's a great player. I just, I see a bit more within um, Tizano at the moment. How but interesting anyway. will it be to see what happens with this model and if this stuff actually yeah. happens? And it yep. becomes this kind of open, free-form market of players just going all over the place. Well, because uh, um, Scott, yeah. so Dave Rennie and Scott Johnson are sitting there going, you'd be better there, you'd be better there, you'd be better there, you'd be better there, you'd be better there. It hasn't worked out like that within Irish rugby. No. Um, and hasn't, from my understanding, is not the way that it works in New Zealand either. It would be fascinating to see it like that. Um, I think it would just be more 
maybe one or two players a season. Maybe mm. one or two players. A but season. what happens with that that Mog situation? That will be interesting to see in the next year. If yep. all of a sudden Mog's shown up at the Waratahs and he's been tapped on the shoulder by yeah. RA. Just in relation to that, I think the system that I guess Ireland probably really exploited it was before the 2019 World Cup. Their two best fly halves were at the same team. Yeah. But because Joey Carberry and Jonathan Sexton were both competing uh, for game time, it didn't really make much sense for them to both stay there. So I think the example that I give that's probably the most relevant is the Brumbies hookers with um, McInerney, Lonergan, and Falafayenga. Obviously, they can't all get game time. I really think it's only an issue if it turns out two of them are the best two. So if we end up saying that is our best hooker and Lonergan's our second best hooker, then it probably does make sense to shift Lonergan to another team or, um, you know, give McInerney away so that at least it is just those two getting game time. But at the moment, I really don't think there's much need to force any of these changes. I don't think many of them were really that dire because looking at the squads, most teams look um, pretty solid and pretty good. If anything, the one spot I didn't even mention, but the force back row is pretty light on. They've only got four mm. players currently signed. Wow. So because the Rebels have, you know, Kemeny, Wells, Hardwick, Wilkin, Leota, um, it probably wouldn't hurt for them to send, you know, one of those players who could start probably at the force um, over there, even though it's not one of the ones I mentioned. But, like, if we're just making practical choices, um, maybe that's slightly better than, you know, who's actually a Wallaby contender or needs to fill out the squad. But... As we said at the start of all this, it's really keen. Um, sorry, I'm really keen to see what they actually do with this because mm. it opens the door for so many possibilities. Yeah. But really, in the first year, they might not really do yeah. anything in terms of play movement. They might just see how the teams go and then make decisions from there. And they might just focus on forming positive relationships between the clubs before they then try and impose upon them. Uh, I think that'll be really. It'll be really important for the relationships to be kept positive and constructive um, rather than forcing changes that clubs uh, may not be the most fond of, but uh, better for the Wallabies overall. Team, we are going to call it there. It has been a great time doing this recording with you. We do have something important we need to say, though. There is going to be a pick and drive live this Thursday night at 8 p.m. AEST or whatever the current Sydney time A-E-D-T, is. AEDT, is it now? AEDT? Yeah, yeah, probably AEDT. Like well, 8 p.m. Time? Sydney. 8 p.m. <laughs> Sydney time. Because that's all the time that know. matters. Yeah, no. sorry. <laughs> um, so make sure you get involved there. We're going to be basically doing a recap of the rugby championship. Um, there's going to be some cool things we're going to be uh, selecting teams of the championship and also hopefully we'll have the Wallabies touring squad to Europe available by then. No guarantee on that one, obviously, but we're hopeful. So any final thoughts, Mitch, you want to say before we finish up? Oh, just on that last point that you mentioned, so we're going to do a team of the tournament for the rugby championship, but we want to hear your team as well. So we'll put something up on um, our social media this week, probably on Twitter is the most easiest way to do it. So get behind our Twitter and let us know who your favorite players from each position were for the rugby championship. And we'll have our pick and drive team of the tournament and the fan choice team of the tournament. Yep. And we'll see really which cool. one is better. Can't wait to see that. Rev, any final comments before we finish up, my friend? Um, as long as Vili LaRue isn't chosen in anyone's fullback jersey, then I'll be happy. You must be so happy that he got taken off. Oh, I was so happy. He's an absolute bum. But pick, <laughs> pick Banks. I, I'm in a great mood. Wallabies are winning. Um, you know, we're just in a really positive mindset. There's so much great news coming out with rugby. And I feel like every time I open up Twitter, there's, you know, someone sprouting some great, um, you know, story or some uh, nice news piece. So 
I just think we're in a great way. So let's keep the good vibes going. For sure. Let's go. All right. Thank you, everybody. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you Thursday, 8 p.m. Bye.